pray for God's blessing on the ministry of His Word. Lord, we do look to You in faith now. We recognize that if we do not have faith in the power of Your Word, in the authority of Your Word, through the Lord Jesus Christ, then it will be of no value to us this morning. And so we pray that You would give us that gift of faith, that we might linger upon it as we read it this morning and study it, that we might linger upon it this afternoon and throughout the week as we take in and digest all that you have for us. And we ask this in the strong and powerful name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture passage this morning is Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 25. You'll find that on page 847 of the Pew Bible. Mark chapter 11 verses 1 through 25. Now this chapter includes the triumphal entry which we studied just a couple of months ago on Palm Sunday in preparation for Easter Sunday. So we will spend very little time on that section but rather focus our attention upon Jesus' entry into Jerusalem uh, on the following day. This is the beginning of the last week of Jesus' earthly life before the crucifixion and he has many things to teach us mark chapter 11 beginning in verse 1 now when they drew near to jerusalem to bethphage and bethany at the mount of olives jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat untie it and bring it if anyone says to you why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let, him go, let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that, had, uh, that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them a saying and as and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, 
because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your, you your trespasses. When I was just a, a young boy living in Louisiana, I remember on a Saturday morning going with a friend and his family to a place called the Crater of Diamonds, which to a young boy was fascinating. The whole point was to go there and rent shovels and pay to dig in this large crater which was just a, an open field in the hopes of finding diamonds. And so my friend and I began to think and plan about all the things that we were going to do with the money that we earned from digging up diamonds in this big field called the Crater of Diamonds. We got there, we rented our shovels, we paid the fee and went in and we began to dig and dig and dig and the sun got very hot, we got very tired and pretty soon we got discouraged. And about midway through the day, we heard a rumor that began to spread around the field that, that someone had found a diamond. And so that fueled us on to, to dig all the more to try to find a diamond. Of course, we found nothing. And I'm still convinced to this day that that rumor was not started by someone who actually found a diamond, but by somebody who was on staff there who wanted little boys and little girls to continue digging and coming back to the crater of diamonds. We were looking for something of value. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing when he came into Jerusalem. He wasn't looking for diamonds, but he's looking for something of spiritual value from the people that were his people. Jesus came looking for spiritual fruit among his own people. We know that Jesus entered into Jerusalem at what is often referred to as the triumphal entry was Passover. He's come with great crowds, tens of thousands of people who are coming from all around Jerusalem, all around Judea, all around the land of Israel, and indeed from around the world as they knew it. That they might come and worship God at the Passover feast. The time in which true Israelites joined together to remember the salvation event that God had worked for them centuries before by bringing them out of Egypt and taking them through the Red Sea, saving them from all of their enemies and bringing them into a land flowing with milk and honey. It was great excitement. I don't know if you've ever been to a large national conference somewhere. There's often great excitement and a great buzz around as thousands of people gather together to hear the Word of God, expectant of what God is going to do, and hear 
literally tens of thousands of people are gathering together expectant to come and worship the Lord. And there's great excitement in the air. Here after this worship-filled entry when Jesus is hailed to be the King, Hosanna to the Son of David, Jesus, we're told, stands in the temple. Verse 11, He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when He had looked around at everything, as it was late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. He stood in the temple as if to inspect it. Sort of like a, a carpenter comes to inspect the work of his apprentice. Or a chef comes to inspect the work of the sous chef. What kind of value can I find here? That's what he was doing while he was in the temple. And what he's looking for are real spiritual fruits that flow from faith in God. I wonder what Jesus was thinking as he was looking at the temple. Maybe he was recounting in his own mind and remembering some of the psalms that were written about the joy and pleasure of being in God's presence in the temple. One thing I ask of you, Lord, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Those great expressions of worship that the psalmist had at pleasure Worshiping the gracious and loving and sovereign God. Or maybe he was thinking about his own experience as a young boy when he went into the temple. He began to ask all the teachers of the law various questions and he confounded them. And in fact, he began to teach them many things. Now as he looks at this temple, he is discouraged And must have been saddened as he went out to Bethany that night, contemplating and meditating upon and thinking about what would he do the next day? What would he do to rectify this particular situation where the temple, which was to be a place in which the people of God joined together to worship him, has now been filled with all the money changers and indeed has become a den of robbers As he says to them. See Jesus. Is not impressed by the masses. He's not impressed just because a large crowd gathers. He's not impressed by the number of sacrifices that are offered. He's only impressed by genuine. And real faith. What's Jesus going to do here. To help his people. The first thing is this. He wants to save his people from empty religion. Verse 15 and following, we see Jesus coming into the temple the next day. They came into Jerusalem. He entered the temple. And the first thing he did was to begin to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now at this particular time, the temple itself had a perimeter known as the court of the Gentiles. It was the only place the Gentiles were allowed to enter into. And around the court of the Gentiles was a covered portico. And it was 500 yards approximately long and approximately 300 yards wide, about 
35 acres. And in that court of the Gentiles, particularly around the covered portico, were money changers. And in one sense, you could say they were providing a good service. Think of all the people who came from great distances who were not able to bring a lamb or able to bring any kind of offering and carry it over those large distances. They needed to purchase one. And if they came from lands far away, they wouldn't have the, the shekel currency that was the only currency acceptable in the temple. And they would need somebody to exchange their currency into the temple shekel. And so in one sense, these people in the court of the Gentiles are providing a much needed service. But what has happened is now the court of the Gentiles, the only place where they can gather, has become so congested with people. So congested with money changers. So congested with those who are selling animals for sacrifice. that now the Gentiles can barely even make it in. Josephus, the church historian, tells us that in the year 66 A.D., 255,600 lambs were offered for Passover. A quarter of a million lambs. Think of just how many people were crowded into the court of the Gentiles. And how many people were being displaced outside the court of the Gentiles because there were so many money changers and so many people on the inside that would not even allow them in. And it's this kind of thing that is despicable to Jesus because that's not the thing that the temple was designed for. It was to be a place of worship, a place of prayer, a place of, of teaching of the Word of God. The Gentiles had only one place to go. And that was into the court of the Gentiles. That they could gather together if they were of those who now became uh, converted to the faith of Judaism, could gather together and worship and prayer and praise to hear the teaching of the priests and sing praises to God. But now under the leadership of the Sadducees and the chief priests, it had become a den of robbers. Now Jesus is quoting here from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, and He speaks of those who would come into the temple whose hearts are filled with sin and yet want to come in and make an offering. He says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Only uh, to go on doing these abominations has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers, in your eyes. Jesus is now condemning all those who are gathering together whose hearts are filled with sin who maybe want to capitalize upon all those who would come to worship so that they would receive a monetary gain from it. That's not why God gave the temple. It's so that God's presence would dwell among His people, so that God's people could come into His presence and worship Him and receive blessings from Him. The word robber here simply means an, an insurrectionist, a rebel, 
It's someone who is like the person in Jeremiah 7 who is rebellious against God and yet dares to come into the temple courtyards to pretend as if he is worshiping God. Religion has become a big business in the temple. Just like in many ways it's become a big business in our own society. Religion is a big business. I can't tell you how many offers I get in the mail every week wanting me to come and pay for this or go to this particular conference or do this thing that I need for our church to grow. Think of all the gurus out there who want us to spend money so that we can have some kind of spiritual benefit. People who would profit from us. There are people here who are wanting to profit from all those who would gather together to worship God. To Jesus, it's simply empty religion. It's people who would stand in the temple, who would look the part, who would act as if they really had a heart for God, and yet at their core had no love for Him. Jesus wants to save His people from this kind of empty religion. He does so in two ways. One, by rebuking those who trust in religion. Rebuking those who trust in religion. Those who would gather together, who would sprinkle a little bit of religion on top of their lives and act as if they are really devoted to the Lord. I remember a particular man who spent his whole life in the church. He was raised in the church. He went to church every Sunday. But for him, it was actually a business arrangement. He wanted to be seen. He wanted everybody else in the community to think well of him because he's a good church-going man. And therefore, they will do business with him. And One day when the gospel came home, that he was still in his sins, regardless of whatever religious activity he engaged in, that there was no hope for him outside of the grace of Christ, he bowed before Jesus and pleaded for mercy and realized, I have been trusting in all of my religious efforts rather than trusting in Jesus himself. Oftentimes, people in the church can be so busy with religious things that they don't actually seek to know God. Their heart is very far from God. And they want very little of Him. And so Jesus is rebuking those who trust in religion, but secondly, He's doing this. He's rescuing those whose faith is blocked by the merely religious. I said earlier that the court of the Gentiles is the only place where Gentiles who want to worship God and pray to God, it's the only place where they can gather. And what does Jesus say about the temple? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. It was to be a city set on a hill. A place in which all the nations are gathered to. Because Israel was supposed to be a missionary nation. Not simply holding the good news to themselves, but rather proclaiming it to the nations as the nations traveled by. And they're keeping the Gentiles from enjoying the blessing of being with God. And yet what God says in Isaiah in this passage that Jesus is quoting, Isaiah 56, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, 
who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. God promises to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord that He will welcome them into His courts, that He will place His name upon them, and they will have joy in His house of prayer. Jesus here is now rebuking all of those who are merely religious, who would actually block those who come in true faith. Christianity sometimes is merely busyness. Unfortunately, the church in many areas keeps the people of God so busy that as though they're in, uh, maybe uh, implicitly communicating to the people of God as long as you keep up, as long as you stay busy within our doors, as long as you keep pursuing the kinds of things that we keep telling you to pursue, as, you, as long as you keep doing all these things, well, then there's security for you. And that's a dangerous place for the church to be in. Because what the church ought to be doing is gathering people in to say, now know God, know Jesus, pursue Him in His grace. That's the central message of the Gospel, that Christ would forgive your sins and welcome you into His courts and give you a name that cannot be taken away from you. It's not a message of being busy. It's not a message of being religious. It's a, measure, it's a message of having a heart for God, for the grace that He has given to you. Jesus says, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who comes to Him in faith, He says, I will make the way straight and I will clear a path for you. That you will be welcomed in My presence. And so here Jesus is saving His people from empty religion, but He's also doing this. He's warning His people of judgment. This incident in the temple is sandwiched between a situation in which Jesus finds a fig tree. Jesus is hungry one morning as He's going into Jerusalem and He sees this fig tree off in the distance. It's got leaves upon it. Spring has come, the leaves have sprouted, and yet there's no fruit. We're told by Mark here that it is out of season for figs, but in the springtime, there were little buds of fruit that weren't quite ripe and they were edible. And for the man who is hungry, particularly in first century Palestine, where you were not able to go through a drive through on the way to work, these edible pieces of fruit would have been very valuable to Jesus and His disciples. And He takes it upon Himself to use this as a lesson to His disciples. He declares a curse upon the tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And His disciples heard it. And when He proceeded to go on in Jerusalem and see no spiritual fruit in the temple, He's using this as a parable that He acts out for His disciples and for the rest of the church to say, 
there's a great warning of judgment here. And if you do not heed it, you will be like this fig tree that will wither away and die, which is exactly what happens. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Withered away to its roots. It's really a message of judgment and a judgment that will come upon Jerusalem and upon the temple itself in just a few short decades from this particular incident. When the Jews would rebel against Rome because they did not receive the kind of leadership from Jesus that they wanted, eventually they would rebel against Rome and Rome would come and crush them. And it was a form of God's judgment upon His own people because they were so spiritually barren. They were not bearing fruit for God. It's the very thing that Jesus warned His disciples of. In John chapter 15, one of my favorite passages, He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. You need to abide in Me if you're going to bear fruit. And in verse 6 He says, If anyone does not abide in Me, He is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus is giving a warning sign to his people to take seriously. There are warning signs all throughout life. Think think of some of the things in history. There were warning signs that there were icebergs in the area in which the Titanic sailed and the captain did not heed the warning. There were warning signs for the space shuttle discovery that something had gone wrong in the liftoff, that there was damage to the wing of the space shuttle, and yet the warning was not heeded. There were warning signs on the platform of the oil rig in the Gulf before it blew, and the warnings were not heeded. And Jesus here graciously is giving a warning because God takes sin and rebellion against Him seriously. You have to look no farther than the cross of Christ to see just how seriously Jesus takes sin. That He would be willing to be nailed to the cross to bear the awful judgment of God's wrath upon sin. To see just how seriously He takes it. He's giving a warning sign to the church as well in this particular passage. But we're all in different positions to receive it differently. Some of us are maybe like those who are part of the den of robbers and we're just imposters. Spiritual imposters who bear no real fruit of faith for God. And maybe we need to listen to the warning So that the same judgment of God does not come upon us. Others of us are merely apathetic towards God. And maybe we need to hear this kind of warning too. It is a wake up call to us. Some of us receive this warning as those who are bitter in soul at the the circumstances of life. The things that have come our way. And we're maybe now even bitter at God because of those things. And we need for His warning not to harden our hearts, but soften them so that we come to Him in faith and repentance. 
Some of us are uncommitted. We're not sure where our allegiances lie. Jesus puts before us a great decision. What will we do? And then there's, of course, the proud. The person who says, I don't need to repent. Things are fine with me. Jesus gives a warning to all. But then there's also the child of God, the one who trusts in the grace of the gospel. How should the child of God receive such a warning? Child of God wants to be careful. To abide in Jesus. To remain in Him. He is the vine and we are the branches and we do not want to be found outside of Jesus. We want to hold fast to Him. We do not want to let go of Him. And the child of God says, I do not want to disappoint my heavenly Father. I do not want to be far from Him. I want to be close to Him. And so the child of God receives it as a warning too. But a gracious warning. To say, child, don't run from me. But come closer. That I might bless you. See, the warning here is really to those who live a pattern of life of rebellion against God. A pattern of life of uh, apathy towards God. A, a pattern of life of pride towards God. It's not the person who finds themselves in sin against Him and quickly repents. I saw on the news that the World Cup, the United States played against England. England, I think, was the clear favorite, and they certainly thought that they were the favorite. And yet, the Americans were able to score a goal to tie the game. They did so because the goalie for England committed a cardinal sin. It was a very easy hit ball. And rather than getting his whole body in front of it to scoop it up or at least block it, he reached out his hands and the wet ball slipped away and went into the goal. And that young man, I feel so badly for him, has been plastered across the media of all of Britain. He's been tarred and feathered because of one thing. And that's what he'll be known for the rest of his life. The child of God is not condemned because of one thing. There's always grace in God if we return to Him. But the warning here really is to those who are proud, who are hard in heart, who are bitter towards God, and do not listen to the message. Listen to the warning. And receive it in faith. How do you receive warnings like this? If there's never any change, then maybe you haven't received it rightly. But if it produces fruit in you, then all the good intentions that you've had will actually bear fruit. Because your hope is not in your own abilities. Your hope is not in your own pattern of life, but it's in repentance and coming to faith in Christ. Well, Jesus not only wants to save His people from the empty religious and warn His people of judgment, He wants to do a third thing, and I'll say this very briefly. He wants to instill trust in God's power. We're told here in verse 20 that when they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered what had happened the previous day. And he said, Rabbi, look, the tree that you have cursed 
has withered. Almost in surprise that this has actually happened since Jesus cursed it. And Jesus goes on here to teach a lesson. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. He wants to see the fruits of faith. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Now, we don't have time to go into all the technicalities about this. But Jesus here is speaking in hyperbole. He's speaking of the seemingly impossible and saying that it is possible with the power of God for those who actually trust him. He's pointing us to trust God because true living faith turns to God in trust rather than in trusting ourselves. In times of great illness, in times in which we fear the enemy, in times in which we need justice to be done, times when we're weak in ministering to others, times when we're guilty over our sin, times in which we lack wisdom, Those are the times he says, turn to God in faith. And you will receive great blessings here. But lest we think well of ourselves that somehow we receive because there's something righteous in us. Jesus goes on to say, verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I think this is probably one of the most difficult things to do in life is to forgive someone who doesn't ask for it. But that's what Jesus is referring to. Forgive if you have anything against anyone. They may not have asked forgiveness, but he says to forgive them nonetheless. We often wait in vain for an apology, but here is evidence of real spiritual fruit, when we are able to forgive people who have never come to us in humility and said, oh, please, would you forgive me? Because you see, what it does is show that we have the heart of the Savior within us. The one who would come while we were His enemies to solve our problem of guilt. He asks us to Be gracious. Be merciful. Just like Christ who said on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Here's a great test to see if we've taken His warning to heart and seek to bear spiritual fruit of faith. Can we forgive everyone regardless of whether or not they have even asked for it? There's a test for us. Are we trusting an empty religion? Or are we truly having the heart of the Savior? Bearing fruit of faith. That's what He's calling us to. Let's seek to live for Him in that way. Heavenly Father, we turn to You now. We do recognize that Jesus gives us very stern warnings in His Word. We pray that we would take them to heart we would not be so foolish as to think that we have listened to them and yet our lives have never changed but rather we would be those of faith who turn to you in all circumstances 
we would be those of faith who forgive everyone, regardless of whether or not they have asked for it. Because that's the way of our Savior. And we want to know Him and be like Him. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.